if you were this morning put on the spot and asked, who would you say is your favorite Bible character? Okay, if you were put on the spot this morning at St. Peter's and asked, who's your favorite Bible character? Who would you say? And no, (laughs) you are not allowed to say Jesus. Who would you say? Who would you say? If you were asked, is your favorite Bible character? When you stop, even for a moment to think about it, there are a plethora of wonderful, deep, interesting characters in Scripture to choose. Who would it be for you? Come on, who would it be? Maybe it would be Ruth, would it? Faithful friend. Maybe it'd be Peter. For some of us, it would be Peter, a rebel, a rebel restored? Who would it be? Well, for a lot of people, a character that really does stand out in Holy Scripture is the character, the figure of John the Baptist. He's a favorite for many, and even this morning, if he's not your uh, number one on the list, I'm sure you would agree with all of those people. John the Baptist is one interesting chap, isn't he? He's an interesting figure from his experience of the Holy Spirit in the womb, to his experience of outrageous brutality in death, and then taking in his, let's say, unique fashion sense, and his unique diet along the way, John is indeed a rather interesting figure. Well, because of that, I really do think this morning at St. Peter's, we should be enthused because as you open your Bibles, what do you find? It is none other than John the Baptist that is in focus here. What we're going to see this morning, what we're going to learn, I think, are lessons from John the Baptist about the Christian life, essential lessons. And also what is going to happen this morning is John the Baptist is going to do the thing that probably John the Baptist is best at. And this morning here, John the Baptist will point us, God's people, John will point us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. So, if you would, uh, and you have a copy of Scripture, please turn there uh, with me. Let's, if we can, have a copy of uh, Luke chapter 7 open in front of us from verse 18. Um, If you are visiting, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we will try and project some of the verses that we're focusing on uh, up in the slides, up in the screens to help you. And we're going to look at a few things this morning. The first matter at hand is this, and it's the doubting of John the Baptist. Did you get that? The doubting of John the Baptist? Okay. Uh, never ever meet your heroes. Never meet your heroes. We've heard that phrase, sure. I think we understand what's in view in that phrase. It's the idea that we might really think we admire a famous person. And we sort of look up to that famous person. They seem tremendous. And then somehow we maybe meet that famous person. And what do we find? But this famous person has major flaws. Major flaws just like everybody else, just like us. Well, it could be a little bit like that for us this morning in, in Holy Scripture. Don't you think? After all, just think about John the Baptist and his credentials 
So who are we thinking about here? Hang on. This is, wait a minute, this is the John that was spoken about, predicted in the Old Testament, isn't it? And this is the John the Baptist, so zealous that he was out in the wilderness. What was he doing? He was preaching and proclaiming, wasn't he? Wait, what about his character? This is the John the Baptist that was so humble. What does he say? He must increase and I must decrease. This John, and, and what are you told here? Let's, let's look at verse 19 together. In fact, if we can project verse 19, uh, if we look at verse 19, what happens here? Do you see it? Verse 19, we find John, through a couple of his, what will we call them, disciples or agents, John comes to Jesus, and what is he asking Jesus? Are you with me if I say that essentially he's asking Jesus, are you, the, are you really the Christ? Isn't he? Look, look at the question there. It's like, are, are you really the one who is the Christ? Don't you find that amazing? Like from the faithful forerunner, the one who has been promised in the Old Testament. What do you find in this verse? I'm going to suggest what you find here. It's not just uncertainty. You find from John the Baptist, you find doubt. Are you really the Christ? Are you really, really the one who was to come? Now, doubt in the Christian life is a very complicated thing. And the truth is, we are not told here why John the Baptist is uncertain and, and doubting. I think, though, we know enough to know that what we can do right now is we can very gently speculate. I think you'll forgive me if I do that, will you? We can gently speculate why he's perhaps a little bit uncertain, why he's doubting here. So I'll suggest a couple of things. See if you get these. Number one, I think this doubt might arise because of just confusion. Uh, see, how good is your memory? You got a good memory? Can, can you cast your mind back over the sermon series and can you remember some of the things that you've heard John the Baptist say? Can you try and do that? If you do that, if you cast your mind back over Luke's gospel, perhaps you'll remember this, that one major theme of John the Baptist's ministry was this, that when the Christ came, there would be from the Christ a work of imminent judgment. Can we remember that? John prophesying, saying that when Christ comes, there's going to be judgment, an imminent judgment. I'll help you out. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 9. Listen to this. John says this. He says, get these two words. He says, even now, even now the axe is at the root of the tree. Does everyone see that's imminent judgment prophesied? A little bit later, John goes on to say this of Christ. He says, his winnowing fork, where is it? Already his winnowing fork is in his hand. Do you see this prophecy, a centerpiece of John's ministry, imminent judgment? Well, hang on a second. Do you see, could it not be argued that that has in a way not happened yet? I mean, Jesus' ministry has begun. How did it begin? Did it begin with fire and brimstone? Does Jesus begin his earthly ministry raining down fire from, from heaven? Is that what happens in separating the sheep and the goats? No, he begins healing. And he begins 
teaching. So can you see it? Like perhaps for John the Baptist, at the back of his mind, he's thinking, what Jesus began like that? Where is the, the winnowing fork? Where is the axe at the, the root of the tree? And, and perhaps this causes some doubt to rise in John's mind. You with me? That's one suggestion, and it is just a suggestion. <laughs> Second suggestion, though, is that this doubt may have arisen quite simply from his circumstances, because we know enough, don't we? You know enough to remember where John is here. Where is he? Do you remember John the Baptist at this point here? Why is he sent two of his disciples? At this point here, John the Baptist is in chains, isn't he? Do you remember? You, you do? Like John has spoken out about Herod's really, really dodgy uh, relationship with his brother's wife. And what had Herod done? Man, Herod had sent John the Baptist away to Herod's desert fortress. Do you know where this was? It was in the middle of nowhere, miles away. It was on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. He's alone. And it's not too much of a stretch, is it? To think that right there in the darkness of that, that dungeon, week after week after week, and in the misery of his loneliness there, what's happening with John? He's beginning to scratch his head. Why am I here? And, and this Jesus of Nazareth, is he really the one? Is he really the one come to set the captives free? Now, of course, in the way that this book, the Gospel of Luke, is put together and constructed, the way it's written, certain uh, characters in this Gospel, they function for you and for me uh, almost like uh, ministers of parliament. I'll say that again. So certain characters in this book, they function for us like MPs in the sense that there's certain characters in this book that function to represent the reader. I think you can see that, can't you? Certain characters represent, like if you think about uh, uh, Theophilus right at the start, do you see that he represents our need sometimes to, to have assurance uh, from, from God? Do you see, well, the same is true here of John the Baptist. Christian friend, as he sits in that dungeon, scratching his head, weeping perhaps, awaiting a response from, from Jesus, Aren't you and I reminded that in the Christian life, sometimes it's true that we also have doubts? That sometimes in the Christian life that we also have very, very serious questions about our salvation and about our Savior. And, and it may even be the case that that's exactly where you are this morning at St. Peter's with real, real, real doubts. Well, if so, what you need to do is consider how Jesus deals with John's questions and his doubts here. And I want us to share this. It will sound strange to you, but I think we learn from God here two lessons about how we deal with doubt, but they're lessons that come from what Jesus does not do or say. I'll say that again. So we learn lessons about how we deal with questions we have, how we deal with doubts, but from what Jesus doesn't say. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Well, let's look at it. If we put up verse 21, or you look to verse 21, have a look there. So, so let everyone, let's make sure we're exactly where we need to be in the story. So what's happened right now? John has sent these two figures, these two disciples. They've come to Jesus. They've effectively asked Jesus, 
Are you, the, are, you, are you really? John wants to know, are you really the Christ? And if you look at verse 21, what do you not read? So we've all got different translations of the Bible. There's so many different translations here. But I'm guessing none of your translations say this. You ready? So they come with a question. John's wondering this. And Jesus, he doesn't know none of your Bibles. So you can tell me if they do on the way out the door. But none of them say, and Jesus rolled his eyes at the question. And Jesus sighed. I'm guessing it's not a King James, RSV, NIV, ESV, whatever it is, none of them say. And Jesus turned to the crowd and he began to rebuke John because of his doubts and lambast John because of his question. And isn't that if you see that, and you see that response here that is from Jesus, isn't it such an important lesson from us? If you are doubting, please hear me. We, we cannot think for a second that God is going to be angry with us for, 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 our doubt, for our doubting. If we take our sincere questions and our concerns and our uncertainty, and if we take it to the Lord Jesus Christ, what are we going to find but kindness there? You take your doubts, your questions to Jesus, we will find a sympathetic high priest, one who is gentle, one who is lowly, one who loves us. And so if you are doubting just now, if you have, as a Christian, sincere questions today, what do you do with that? Do you know what you do? First thing you do, you go to Jesus. You take those questions to the one who is a patient friend, a faithful friend. But I said, I said there's two things that Jesus doesn't do or doesn't say. And there's something more. Again, let, let, let's make sure we've got it. These two disciples, they come to Jesus. John is saying, what? Are you really the one who it was to come? If we look at verse 22, isn't it interesting to note, Jesus doesn't say yes. Isn't it? You know, are you really the one? John is desperate to know. Are, are you really the Christ? Are you the, and Jesus, in a way, doesn't give a straightforward answer. Does he? He doesn't say uh, yes. But do you notice what he does? I think everyone saw it. We know this, don't we? What Jesus does, he performs a series of miracles. And then the key thing that he does is he almost then quotes Scripture. Do you notice that? So what Jesus does in response to this question is he alludes to sections that are taken from the book of Isaiah. So it's Isaiah 61 amongst other places. Now, these are places where Isaiah, hundreds of years beforehand, has spoken about the characteristics of the messianic age. Isaiah saying, when the Christ appears, he will do exactly what Jesus was doing at that very moment and healing the lame, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. But is it not interesting? Jesus does not say yes. He does not give a straightforward answer, but what does he do for this man in doubt? Do you know what he does? He pushes John the Baptist to God's word with his doubt, doesn't he? He implores John to think biblically saying to John, ah, remember Isaiah, remember what he says, go back to God's word, and you put the pieces of the jigsaw together yourself. Now, I, I think uh, sometimes in preaching, uh, we, we, 
stumble upon, if you'll allow that, uh, lessons that are absolutely essential uh, to the Christian life. And I do think this morning at St. Peter's, we have, again, if you allow it, we have stumbled upon one such example here because it, it may be, Christian friend, that what we are dealing with here when it comes to doubt could be just around the corner for you. Like, I, I don't know how this lands with you. Perhaps you're thinking, I'm not doubting. I don't have any questions. Uh, well, beware. We do not know what's around the corner. And I, I want you to appreciate that sometimes as a Christian, when we doubt and we have sincere questions, that brings with it great anguish in our soul. Um, just a, a few weeks ago, I was listening to a, a eulogy uh, at the funeral of my former uh, professor. A good man. A godly man, a wonderful theologian. And with this eulogy, you could tell that the person giving it had spent a bit of time. My professor knew he was dying. And this was a collaborative work. And in this eulogy, there was so much about the doubts that this man had wrestled with. Now, this is, a, a, at the time, he was the greatest living theologian that we have and here is a man who, who, who spoke about the anguish of, of the sincere doubts that he had for, for years and years in the Christian life. And it caused him pain, anguish. And it may be like that for us. And at, at a point, we might just be uncertain of where it is we can go. Because sometimes it's a really private thing, isn't it? And we wonder, well, what do I do with this? Where do I turn with our doubts, with my doubts, if that happens to you? You must do as Jesus encourages John the Baptist right here in this text, and you must go with your doubts to God's Word. You go to Jesus, you go to God's Word. Why? Why? This is how God works. And most likely, it will be through God's Word that God grants you by His grace greater certainty in Jesus Christ. And it will be most likely through God's word that, that the identity perhaps, of the Lord Jesus Christ comes more clearly into focus. And what will you see? You will see that Jesus of Nazareth really is the one that all human history has been waiting for, the one that all of human history, redemptive history, centers around. You will see, won't you, with great clarity, as John put it, Jesus really was the one to come. So we see John's doubts and how Jesus deals with those. Second of all, we see the commending of John, the commending of John. Um, personally speaking, I think that one of the most endearing qualities that a person can have is a determination to stick up for their friends. Don't you love to see that? It's a beautiful quality, it's an endearing quality. When people turn on an individual, let's say it's a group that turn on an individual, it's really easy for us as sinful fallen humans to just to go along with that, to remain silent. And it's a wonderful thing when we see, see a friend stand up and stick up for, for their loved one, for their friend. Isn't it an endearing quality? And isn't it what we see here uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself? You see, if you stick with me in this 
story, you see at this point the two men sent from John, they now head back to this desert fortress to report back to John. And don't you think it could be because of, of, of John's doubting? This crowd that's clearly here and present and gathered around, they could be getting a very negative impression of John. And so what does Jesus do? Do you notice that he, in a moment, he nips it in the bud? And then our Lord, what he does is he defends John? Or actually, we can even go a little bit further. Does he not, even to this crowd, does Jesus not commend John? He commends him to this, this crowd. Now, um, as Will read this earlier on, or maybe, I don't know, this morning as you got up, and you read this portion of scripture before coming out, maybe you read it last night, or even as you skim read it just now, I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of us picked up on the fact that there is this sort of progression in the way that Jesus commends uh, John. Did you pick up on that, the progression? Do you see how it starts? Jesus starts by addressing why it was that so many of the crowd had gone out to, to see John in the wilderness. Like, why did you go out to see him? Was it because he was a wimp? Did you go out to see John because he was a woos? Because he was a, a reed shaken in the wind? Was that it? Or did you, see, did you go out to see him because he was a softy? Did you go out to see him because he was a snob? Because he was a man dressed in soft clothes? No, you went out because he was a man of God. And then it progresses, doesn't it? Jesus underlines the prophetic position of John. Jesus quotes Malachi. He quotes Exodus to show, wait a minute, this John, he really is the one who was foretold in the Old Testament. So there's this progression. But it's where, it's, where it ends that's most beautiful, this emphatic statement that Jesus makes. See, I'm wondering if uh, some of you are, are thinking about summer reading at this point in the year. Is that what you do? A lot, a lot of people do, don't they? They take this time and they hope in vain for a nice afternoon where they can sit maybe in the garden, in the sunshine. Maybe it's a novel. Maybe you've been devouring or looking around for some summer reading. That was on my radar uh, this past week. I stumbled a across a book that I thought that I might purchase. It sounded interesting, uh, I'll not get the title exactly right, but it's something like the 100 most influential people uh, of all time, or the 100 greatest people of all time. Sounds okay, does it? Like, it sounds like this sort of thing that's not going to be too taxing on a break to sit in the sun, but I explored it, and I think top five, you had Confucius, you had Buddha, and number one was given over to Muhammad. So Sam, that doesn't sound like the sort of edifying thing that I really want to read in, the, in the, the sunshine. Is it not amazing to you to consider what the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, says here in verse 28 of John the Baptist? I mean, you've read it a million times, but think about it again. Look at it with new eyes in verse 28. Among those born of women, none greater than John. So do you see there's no exaggeration, hyperbole. Jesus is saying that in the eyes of God, in that book that I was going to buy, John the Baptist in a sense should have been number one, the greatest. Isn't it something to you? Like what a commendation of, what a commendation of his friend. Now if I had longer, 
I'll be written on my gravestone, won't it? But if I had longer, what I would love to assure you of is, is, is the fact that what you're reading of here, Christian friend, is the sort of thing, exactly the sort of thing that is going to be done for you on the day of judgment. I take a moment to, to think about that. Isn't it something? Think of, the, think of the power of the gospel for people that are entirely ill-deserving and before the crowd. Ask here, before the watching world and maybe in the face of accusations from, from Satan, by grace and grace alone, what is Jesus Christ going to do? The Son of God will defend you. He will commend you both to his Father, but before the, before the watching world, this will happen to you. You can see why I wish I had longer. We can't linger there because you, you can see why not. We have this difficult second part of the phrase. Take, take time to read it. Look at the, the second part of verse 28. He says, John, amongst you know, those born of women, he's the greatest. And then Jesus says, yet. And what does he say? Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, are you with me when I say that that sounds almost like it's contradictory? Is that a fair thing to say? I say it obviously with all reverence, due reverence. Like, John the Baptist is the greatest there. He's there. Yet, there are some who are great. But yeah, but we need to think in terms of privilege. The privilege of a new era. Indeed, let me tell you the, the shortest story, quick story that I stole uh, this week. I wonder um, if you've heard of the name Susan Anthony. Maybe the Americans in, in the room will have heard of Susan Anthony. Do you recognize that name? I, I didn't know it. Susan Anthony was a, a campaigner for the, woman, the woman's right to vote. Uh, and she was a campaigner in uh, the United States, late uh, 19th, early 20th century. So you got her name, Susan, Susan Anthony. And this woman, she toiled away uh, for years and years and years. She really gave her life to campaigning for the woman's right to vote in the States. And it's a tragic story uh, because Susan Anthony, she died just before, just before the U.S. adopted the 19th Amendment, which gave the woman the right to vote. She had toiled and toiled and toiled, and she died just before the 9th Amendment was approved. Now, this is what the author says, and follow it and see if you get it. So the author makes this point. He says, as great as Susan Anthony was, in some ways, a regular post-1920s Iowan farm wife was greater than she. Why? Because that anonymous farm wife enjoyed a privilege, the privilege of voting that Susan Anthony did not. And if you see that, don't you recognize that that is exactly the sort of thing that the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here? Don't, don't you see who was John the Baptist? John the Baptist, in a sense, was the last of the old covenant prophets, wasn't he? So he was the last of those who are pointing, coming before Jesus and pointing to Jesus, 
Do you see it? And what is our Lord saying here? He's saying that anyone who comes after John and who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are greater than John. Why? Because of privilege. Because of all the privileges of the new covenant, the privileges of the kingdom of God. And I think this should reverberate around St. Peter's this morning because who's in view here? When our Lord talks about honor and privilege, who is it? It's you. And it's me. Isn't it? Sometimes I think we're in danger of, of not considering this enough. But do it just now. Consider that in terms of redemptive history, you and I live at the most privileged point in all of human history. Now you think about that, where John the Baptist, as great as he was, he knew nothing of the details of Calvary. John the Baptist knew nothing of the details of of that empty tomb or the ascension of, of Jesus Christ. And you sitting here at St. Peter's, you know it all. You'll have all of those details at your, your fingertips. John, as much as he would have loved to, John the Baptist did not know all the details of how the debt of his sin would in the end be paid. And you in here, you know it, you, you love it, you can rejoice in it. For John had, had none of the New Testament epistles about the Christian life and the formation of the church and what lies ahead of us. John didn't have that. You've got it. Where his was limited, your experience of the Holy Spirit, this side of Pentecost, what is it? It is real, it is deep, it is rich, it is daily. Do you see how honored we are? Do you see how privileged we are? And, and, and what should that lead to, do you think? I'm going to suggest, go out on a limb here and suggest that should, that should be met with gratitude, don't you think? From the church, we should be so thankful to God that we are born where we are. But there should be more. Because I ask you this, what would you think of that anonymous Iowan farm wife in the 1920s if having witnessed Susan Anthony secure this privilege that that Iowan farm wife decided, I really can't be bothered voting. What would you think? You think, what, what a shame. After everything that's happened here, do not be like that. Given the honor that we have received from God, should we not exercise the privileges at our disposal? Should we not be pouring over the details of Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, intercession, and doing it all in the power of the Holy Spirit who today dwells within. So we see the commending of John. And then thirdly, lastly, and I assure you most briefly, we see the rejection of John the Baptist, the rejection of John the Baptist. Um, Were you here last Sunday morning? Um, If you were present last Sunday morning, I think you'll remember what we saw at the conclusion last Sunday. Can you think back? Can you get it? Do you remember, just as Luke closed the account of the widow's son being raised, Luke turned you didn't he, in the text, to consider the reaction of the crowd? Do you remember? The the response of the crowd was to recognize Jesus' prophetic office, and it was quite inadequate, an positive but an adequate conclusion about Jesus. Now, Luke does something similar here. What he does is he turns you in the text 
to consider the reception of what Jesus is. What do we have here? Well, in the aftermath of, of Jesus' words as commending of John, you find, I'll use that boxing thing again, you find a split decision. Do you not notice it? So, so some people here respond by praising God. But the focus on the text is on the other lot, on the Pharisees, those who have refused in the first place to go out to John and be baptized, and now who stand rejecting John the Baptist, antagonistic to John the Baptist, but antagonistic to Jesus. Now, as Jesus speaks against these Pharisees, do you find, Christian friend, what Jesus says here peculiar? Now, you won't be the only ones if you do. I, I, I just loved uh, how it was described uh, by somebody else a million miles away from here. But they described what Jesus says next. The parents in here will, will dig this. Uh, this person described what Jesus says here as the parable of the spoiled brats. I love that. I can, I can absolutely go with that. Look at it in verse 32. If we can project verse 32. Do you see what he sees? Jesus is speaking about children. And what do the children say? We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep the parable of the spoiled brats. Did you see the idea? The idea seems to be these children are trying to get other children to join in with their games, and they're trying, and they're failing. And no matter what game they suggest, and it seems to be, will you play weddings with me? Or will you play funerals with me? It's a dance or a dirge. No matter what game is suggested by the kids, what are the spoiled brats doing? They're just not happy. They're not, having, they're not biting. No matter what is suggested, no matter what is put to them, they're not satisfied. They will not engage. They will not bite. They will not have part of it. And what is the parallel? It is the attitude of these Pharisees, isn't it? that no matter how the gospel comes to those people, they are not having it. If John comes, what's the complaint? Ah, oh, John is too strict. John is too austere. If Jesus comes offering them eternal life, ah, oh, he is too celebratory. He is too wild. You see, Jesus ends this section of Scripture underlining the intransigence of natural man. The stubbornness of natural man, no matter how the gospel is presented to some people, there is objection, objection, objection. Why? Because deep down there is a rejection of Almighty God Himself. And so this morning, how, how on earth do we end? Well, I'm going away on holiday. Will's going away tomorrow. I'm going away. I'll be here this week, but I go away. And us ministers are, are strange folk. And at this time of year, when I go away for a few weeks, I, I always find myself wondering, if something happens, what will have been the last thing that I'll have said to, uh, from the pulpit? What, to a congregation that I care for, to St. Peter's, what would be the, the last thing that I would have s said to them? Well, I hope nothing happens. 
<laughs> but if it does, I end, I end uh, with this. I end by imploring you, if you haven't come to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to put that off till tomorrow or the rest of the week, but today to do business with, with God. I, I say that to you because you don't want to be like the Pharisees. You don't want to be stubborn in your rejection of God. And I tell you why, John the Baptist was correct. Maybe, it, maybe it's, his time scale was out, but where is the ax? Even now it is at the root of the tree. There is, hear it. There is a coming judgment of God, an impending judgment. And maybe I'm going on holiday so I can be a little bit more direct about it. I can run away and hide. But you and I are exposed before God. He knows everything about your life. That thing that you've hidden from everyone else, God knows all about it. We will stand before him. You will have to give an account before God. And it is only... Jesus Christ who can rescue you. It is only Jesus Christ who can defend and commend you in that moment. So will you hear that? Well, you have an opportunity today, today, come to Jesus Christ. For who is he? Will we, will we give the last word to John the Baptist? For who is Jesus? What would John have said? Surely at the end of his life, having, having had that confirmation, what would John have said? Who is Jesus? John, even from that prison cell, he would have said, and Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do business if you have not with Christ today. Let's pray.